Good afternoon. Partiality or prejudice or discrimination are something we often see in every facet of our lives. We see it in our social lines, in our economic lines, religious lines, ethnic lines. In our pride, let's face it, we can just about look down on anyone who is different than us, can't we? Well, today, the Bible is going to teach us that prejudice or discrimination or partiality are incongruent with Christianity, meaning incompatible with Christianity. You cannot call yourself a Christian and discriminate against people. They are incompatible. Like oil and water, they don't mix because God is not prejudiced. That is the lesson that James is going to teach us today in chapter 2. So please take the copy of God's Word to the New Testament book of James. We are in our sermon series, The Wisdom for the Church, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Hear now the living and abiding Word of God. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, and they are the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the powerful word that you have given to us. And we thank you, Lord, for giving us this ability to hear your word. And we pray that, Lord, just as we hear, you, we pray that you would convict our hearts to understand areas where we lack, areas where we fail to obey your word. And help us, Father, to live by faith. Give me grace, Lord, to speak your truth and your truth alone. And, and may I do it by knowing you are the Lord of glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. James is writing a letter to his brothers. 
So far, we have observed that in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, James said, Brothers, be steadfast throughout trials. He gave them a divine perspective of their difficulty that God had given them a good gift in their trials. Brothers, be steadfast through trials. And then he continued as if thinking those two thoughts. He continued, verse 19 to 27, he urged them, brothers, be doers of the word. Last week, we learned that true Christianity is not just having the word or receiving the word or hearing the word. But true Christianity is doing it. It is obeying the word of God. You will remember at the end of that little section in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, and I encourage that you look at it, James gives his chief concern. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious, now there is the key word, people who think they are religious, people who will say that they are religious, James says, if anyone who thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And that is what James doesn't want for his brothers. They were all spread all around the world, and he wants their faith to be authentic. And so he encourages them to be doers of the word, not hearers only. And when they are doers of the word, their religion will have substance. It will not be in vain. It will be what he says in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So urging them to have a pure and undefiled Christianity, James is now going to give them an example of how they are not obeying the very word that they hear the very word that has been implanted in their hearts. James has been leading up to this, and he's going to press this point on them by pointing out at a direct infraction among them. He comes to link chapter 2 to what he has just said. So James is continuing this theme, what true religion looks like. And here he is addressing the issue of partiality. He already said, if we are to look back in chapter 1, that the last verses, he says, true religion is for caring for the needy in the covenant community. And there is also a sense of keeping ourselves unstained from the world. He's addressing an issue as a problem as he sees. And so James is showing there is a kind of prejudice or discrimination or favoritism that is wrongful. And not just simply wrongful because it is morally wrong, but it is inconsistent or even contrary to who we are as Christians. What it means to be Christian, what it means to be in Christ. But why does James start with this issue here of the issue of favoritism? I'm not sure James doesn't tell us. He gives us an illustration in verses 2 to 3, but it is not clear if this is what that is really happening in the churches. Whether this was just a hypothetical situation or is it actually happening, but we can know for sure that something was going on and that James is worried about it. But we can say that this is the kind of sin that we often struggle with, if we just think generally, because we are the center of our universe. We often place ourselves at the center of our universe, so the common expression of our self-centeredness is manifested in partiality or playing favorites. 
And we will see why is that the case. And so James says, why is this so inconsistent to what it means to be a Christian? So he starts out with this simple exhortation or prohibition. Now as we start, the first thing that we will see is that we reject partiality because of our faith in Jesus. That's the first point. We reject partiality because of our faith in Jesus. Look with me at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. What he means by that is that is to wrongfully or illegitimately prefer or differ to one person over the other. The partiality here is judging between people on something other than a worthy and legitimate basis. It decides that one sort of person is better than the other and then dishes out the goodies. Basically, gives away the benefits based on that decision. So James says, do not hold faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in this way. Do not have your faith in this way. So to make the emphasis stronger, he says, as you hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And James is putting himself into this category of believers to whom he is writing. Don't put your faith in your Lord in this way by showing partiality or favoritism. The word Lord here speaks to his sovereignty, the fact that he is the king of kings. And Christ in Greek is the equivalent of Messiah, the anointed one, redeemer. He is the king of kings and he is the savior of the world. He is the sole savior of mankind. That's who this one is and therefore he is ascribed rightly all the glory. He is the Lord of glory. But he humbled himself. He befriended the demon-possessed, the sick, the tax collector, the prostitute, and he calls them to himself. He identifies with the sinner regardless of what they look like or what the world thinks of them. He is the one to whom our faith is directed, who did not show partiality, and that is the one whom we primarily prefer. We are not to be showing partiality and preferring men. Why? Because our faith is in this individual, this Lord of glory. And so, as those who have faith in this Lord and Christ, we are renewed people. Faith in Christ doesn't mean just mean believing in few truths about him, but it means that we are a new creation with renewed hearts and minds. And this renewed mind and heart of a believer is capable to view men properly and regard men properly. So we don't boast in men, but we see all men equal in dignity and honor. And that is why Paul says, do good to all men, especially the household of faith. Peter says the same thing, do good to all men, all men are created in the image and likeness of God. And so even in the context of this fall, there is a specialness of human beings. And the mind of Christ will allow us to see and regard all men in the way that they are. Natural man shows partiality, again, because of his principle of selfishness. The renewed man doesn't. He ought not. 
The natural man who doesn't live by faith is defined by selfishness. Self is the point of concern ultimately in everything. We do good things, but there's there's something always pertaining to us. And favoritism marks me as the center for a natural man. But when Christ is the point of concern, when we are delivered from this self-tyranny, that self-enslavement, then we are no longer driven to look at people as different, as you as the point of reference. Therefore, James starts by saying, my brothers, because of your faith in Christ, you have a new mind and a new paradigm of life. And because of these truths, your favoritism is incompatible. It's contrary to, it's inconsistent with this faith. Now, the second thing that we will see is that we reject partiality because it is evil. So we see this illustration that he gives in verse 2, that there are two visitors coming into the, into the morning gathering of a church, two men coming in, one is rich and one is poor. Rich man had a gold ring and fine clothing, and the poor one had filthy clothes. He is struggling to make ends meet. And James imagines, well, one of the greeters went out their way and made the rich guy have the best seat. He says there in verse 3, if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, and then James says, what if you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet? Literally, the translation for that phrase, sit down at my feet, is to say, sit under my footstool. Well, James concludes that in verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James says, isn't this proof that you are showing partiality, that you are making distinctions? Their sinful attitude toward these two visitors, showing favoritism to one and neglecting the other, it shows a sinful division, even in their own minds. In worldly terms, now think for a moment. How do you decide who gets the best seat? People with money, right? You know, that is how the world works. The rich, they drive the best cars. They have the best houses. They get the best seats because they work hard. You know, they earned it. You know, if I am honest, I'm often tempted to make moral judgments about the rich and the poor. I respect the rich and the powerful, the educated, the successful, because I assume, huh, they are hard workers, or maybe they have integrity. And I can be suspicious sometimes of the poor the uneducated, the socially awkward, the destitute. James says, for this, you are evil. This is evil. To make these moral judgments based on external factors. You know, evil is a strong word. Satan is evil. Hitler is evil. We can agree on that, right? But favoritism? Evil? Really? Can we just be a bit realistic? But do we see favoritism as evil? James says partiality or favoritism is evil 
because we have a wavering and divided heart when it comes to our glorious Lord. I'll repeat that. James says, partiality or favoritism is evil because we have a wavering and divided heart when it comes to our glorious Lord. You see that phrase in verse 4, making distinctions among yourselves is the same one he uses back in chapter 1 to describe double-mindedness. This making distinctions among yourselves, their sinful attitude toward these two visitors shows a sinful division in their own minds. It proves that your faith is not in him, in Jesus, the Lord of glory, but in what other people can do for you the pleasure that they can bring to you. And as people who belong to our Lord, the Lord of glory, our Lord Jesus Christ, it shows that we are not loyal to our Lord, but that we have betrayed Him. It shows that other people have become our Lords. This is like what Pastor Alex read from Second Chronicles chapter 19. This is like James commenting on this Old Testament passage. And in that chapter, we read this, this Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, appoints judges in the land of Judah, and he gives them specific instructions. If you look at, again, in Second Chronicles 19, verses 6 to 7, it says, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. He instructs them to not to show injustice or partiality because there is no injustice with the Lord our God. And in the same way, when you show partiality in the church, we do not take into account that we are judging others not on the basis of God's judgment, but on that which is sinful. On that one that does not fear the Lord, the Lord of glory. You are preferring one person over the other based on merely external advantages. So you see, James is addressing a problem among these people. They were prone to show kindness and acceptance and honor to the wealthy. So now I wonder what things might be in our congregation. Certainly, there is a danger to show favoritism, people who are wealthy over against the poor, or people who speak English fluently versus people for whom English is not their first language. People who can speak the same language versus people who don't. Highly educated people versus less educated. People with a healthy, wholesome church background versus people who seem to be periodically struggling in their spiritual lives. People with the same interests and hobbies. People from the West compared to the East. People who are intellectual, who can have serious theological conversations versus people who may just say one-word answers when it comes to theology. People with the same kind of lifestyle. People in the same season of life. Think of all the kinds of people that you might be tempted to prefer. And what sorts of ways we might be tempted to show partiality. What would that actually look like? 
Well, think about how you naturally go after the service. Do you gravitate right towards your friends? Or do you look for people who might not know anyone and see how you could serve them? Or even think about visitors. Think about after the service, who do I enjoy talking to? Who is just like me? Who makes me comfortable? Who do I prefer to be with? The question we need to ask ourselves is, by doing that, do we show favoritism? Are we partial to certain kinds of people? And the third thing that we will see is that we reject partiality because we are heirs of his kingdom. So he says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? The answer is yes. Yes, you see, James roots his command in the character of God. God himself is not partial in the sense that God doesn't distinguish between people based on external qualifications. James says, rather God has chosen those who are poor in the world, those who don't have power, those who don't have prestige, those who don't have money, the kind of person who walks into the church and no one rushes to greet them. That's the kind of person that God tends to choose and use. The kind of person who is chosen to receive true riches. Now, if you were God, who would you choose to represent his kingdom? Probably the well-spoken, the eloquent, the responsible, the good-looking, the talented, the rich, the radical Muslim, the celebrity basketball player, or that musician who is super popular, right? In fact, we prioritize ministry to influencers. The logic is, if we can have the already influential people to believe, imagine the impact that could have in God's kingdom. Now, I don't think that's all wrong, I think we should have gospel outreach to all aspects of the world, but let's not forget those whom the world esteems not, those whom the world has given up on. Consider God's choice. God chose murderers, adulterers, doubters, those left for dead, the poor, the barren, those with speech impediments, liars, frightened men and women, to be his instruments. Brother and sister, he chose you and me. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So the poor, in verse 5, is the one God chose to be rich. Rich not financially, but rich in faith. 
This person may never receive an inheritance from his parents, but James says there in verse 5, he is, we are, heirs to the kingdom of God. You see, this is the character of God shown throughout the Bible. So it is not that God never shows kindness to the rich or the powerful person. You can think of plenty of examples. Zacchaeus, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, and lots of other examples in the Bible. But the general trajectory that James is talking about here is that God's preference is to show mercy and favor to the poor and the unimpressive, the lowly, the despised, as in the ones who are poor in spirit. That is not necessarily because they are better or more worthy or more holy. Poor people can be just as sinful, just as wretched as rich people. But rather, when God shows mercy to those people who are unimpressive, it is clear that it is God's choice. If God chose only those who we think are great, the educated, the intelligent, the wealthy, the good-looking, well, it looks like God is giving them what they deserve. But it is God's free choice to be merciful. The fourth thing that we will see that we reject partiality is because it is outright foolish. We reject partiality because it is outright foolish. Look at verses 6 to 7. James says, You know you love the rich so much, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? For James' readers, the experience with the rich would have been mostly unpleasant. They were the ones who were ripping them off, humiliating them. We find, we find out in the later part of the le letter, they were paying them bad wages. They were taking them to court to collect their debts. Most rich people in that day and time were not followers of Christ, but blasphemed his name. And so James is saying, why on earth are you going your way to honor these people of all people? They are the ones who are taking advantage of you. And not only that, they were slandering the noble name to which they belong. And the irony is that these Christians were catering to those who were exploiting them. Friends, let's be warned to not be sell out from the kingdom riches because we have forgotten where our real treasure is. And finally, we reject partiality because it is against the law. Let's look at verses 8 onwards. James writes, If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those 
who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So how do you love the poor you know as yourself? You know the culture today loves to preach against the low self-esteem or the lack of self-love. The world says, love yourself, be yourself. But our Creator knows that our natural posture that we have is loving ourselves. We don't need to be preached to love ourselves. After all, we bathe ourselves, we feed ourselves, we seek happiness for ourselves. Scripture assumes love of self. So are you loving your neighbors as yourself? What would your neighbors say? Are you sacrificing for them? Are you generous with them? Are you feeding them? Are you having them into your homes? Are you taking time for them? Are you sharing the gospel with them? If so, scriptures say you are doing right. But if you're showing favoritism and just loving those who you think can serve you or those who are basically like you, then you are a lawbreaker. What do we think when we think of God's law for a moment? We take the Ten Commandments, right? We don't think of favoritism or prejudice or discrimination as breaking God's law. But Jesus summarizes the whole law in the love of God and, the, and in the love of neighbor. He calls it the royal law. So if you show favoritism, discriminating against the poor, making judgment about others based on external factors, you are a lawbreaker, just like the murderer, just like the adulterer. So he says in verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. James is saying there is no way to disobey one of God's law without disobeying all of them. He says, if the law of God is this giant paint of glass, and when you sinfully, just even in your heart, discriminate against someone who you say is poor, you don't smudge the glass a little bit. You don't put a little ding in the glass. The glass shatters. The whole paint of glass shatters. God's law has been broken by us, and we are all guilty. And James roots his explanation there in verse 11, the lawgiver himself who stands behind his law. Because the same God spoke each and every one of the commandments that we read about in God's word. Each and every one of them reflects his character and his desire. And so to disobey one command is essentially to disobey all of them because you have offended the same lawgiver. The God who is opposed to murder is also opposed to adultery. Both these commands were his idea, and when you break one, you disobey God and you break the entire law. So in verse 11 he says, For he who said, for God who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, Christian, if you are hearing this and paying attention to this, this should humble you. But I think we are all tempted to think otherwise. We have a set of mind which thinks of sins that we think are not ideal, but okay. 
and which ones we make we which ones make you completely unacceptable as a christian so most of us set up a system so that we can we so that we seem like doing a good job a fair enough job we tend to excuse the sins that we find particularly tempting and so i might have a whole bunch of laws that i expect you to keep and if you don't i might sort of dismiss you of being worldly or immature or godly in the word that james uses there in verse 13 i am tempted to judge you without mercy so that you get no benefit of doubt but when i look at myself the law that i don't keep maybe the command to love my wife the way that christ loved the church or the command to avoid gossip and slander oh i give excuses why that is hard for me and i'm working on it i say doesn't make me a bad person i'm still a good christian but i can still look down on other people with the same law well james comes along and says no more he says you will be judged under the law so in verse 12 he says you should speak and so act as those who are to be judged under law of liberty for judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy and to push push it further for james the law of god is actually the law of liberty and so yes it may seem there is a restriction on what i would do if i were to sort of act on my own impulses but it doesn't mean it's a bad thing think for a moment if i left my 4 year old alone with a carton of ice cream and no instructions right she would have a great time but it would end badly for her you know instinctively you know if you have children you limit what they eat what they drink what they do because you know what is best for them you know how they might hurt themselves if they you don't put limits on their behavior you know the consequences of certain impulses if they are given free reign and so in the same way god's law comes to us and tells us that there may be things we want to do that we shouldn't do and that when we obey god's law we find liberty and freedom that we think we can find in sin and so james says if you keep the royal law you do well but verse 9 if you show partiality you are sinning against the law then in verse 10 and 11 he shows us that when we show partiality against each other against others we are in fact violating the entire law of god james is trying to impress upon our hearts the weight and gravity of the sin of partiality it is no small matter and then in verse 12 he tells us that we should live like people who are going to be judged under the law when the king judges you it will be on the basis of his entire law you don't get to say i did a good job in these parts and i was really strong in this area but but i did pretty well in some there there are there's only two categories in god's eyes the law keeper and the law breaker so then how can jesus claim that this law of god brings freedom when we are law breakers judgment is coming according to our deeds words and thoughts and james says this is the law that brings freedom really we need to understand what is going on here 
In James 1, James associates the law of God with God's word. And that is how we should think of the law in this context. The word of God is a perfect expression of God's will and character. You know God didn't have to speak to his creation. He didn't have to show his holy standard. But he did in mercy, and by obeying his law, we can find freedom from sin and ultimately mercy at his judgment. But as we should all know by now, we are all lawbreakers. So how do we know the freedom that comes from the law? James 1 verse 18 says, God chose to give us birth by the word of truth, that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. Just as we thought about this last week, here God must choose and make you a part of a new creation. If you are to know freedom from God's righteous judgment, he must implant the word of truth in you. Or as the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah have written hundreds of years prior to this, a time is coming when God will write his law in the hearts of his people. That time has come in Jesus Christ. The day of salvation is today. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself. You can't. It is simply not within your power. But God, full of righteousness and mercy, sent his son who fulfilled the law. He kept every last commandment. The paint of glass wasn't broken. On the contrary, the son polished the glass and through the righteous incarnate son, we can now see the father. He was the one with the Father. For God in his mercy knew that we couldn't keep his holy standard. So he sent his son to keep the law in our place. And then suffered on the cross and bore the penalty for all of our law breaking. And if you repent of your law breaking and trust in Christ Jesus, you are part of a new creation. You receive his Holy Spirit and his law is written on your heart. You know, you will not keep the law perfectly yet. We still have indwelling sin, but you are given a new identity. And the law no longer is burdensome to you. It no longer condemns you, but you now, by faith, you will walk after Jesus, following in his footsteps. And so, now my friend, if you will turn to God in repentance, that is to say, if you will confess that you are a lawbreaker who deserves God's justice, if you will turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, then you will be recipient of God's mercy. You see how it works? God is not unjust when he forgives us. He doesn't allow our lawbreaking to go unpunished. But in his mercy, he takes that punishment that we deserve and he places it on his son so that we might be spared. So friend, if you are here this afternoon and you are not the follower of Jesus Christ, there is a marvelous opportunity before you right now. You stand condemned in your sin, judged for breaking law, God's law. But God's mercy, according to verse 13, is able to triumph over judgment. If you will turn to Jesus in faith, you will be recipient of God's mercy. My friend, if you have any questions about what that means, I would urge you to talk to the person who brought you, or after the service, please come and talk to me. And for those who are already in Christ, the good news prepares us to understand what James has been talking about throughout this passage. 
So when we show partiality, when we prefer the wealthy and the powerful in our midst to the poor and the humble, James is saying that we should find ourselves at odds with God's perspective. We are in odds with God's wisdom. In his wisdom, God sent to us this Lord of glory. And the poor in our midst, if they are in Christ, are far more than they appear. They are, as we said, heirs of kingdom, beloved sons and daughters of the kingdom. They are royalty. They deserve the highest honor. So brothers and sisters, beware of the sin of partiality. Is this the sin that you have never confessed? Pause for a moment. Think about it and repent. You might be thinking, well, I have many other things in my life to worry about. But James warns us from neglecting any parts of God's law of liberty. Remember the law. The royal law commands us to love others the way that we love ourselves. James closes by this statement, mercy triumphs over judgment. If you show mercy and love your neighbor as yourself, you prove you are part of a new creation and that you have been shown mercy by the Father. So mercy triumphs over judgment. May God give us grace to serve our King, the Lord of glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we plead for mercy this afternoon knowing that we have failed in breaking your law, this royal law to love, love you and love others as ourselves. And help us, Father, to not be in the sin, but give us grace, Lord, to see areas where we are tempted to do this, repent of it, seek forgiveness by looking to Christ, and move on, proceed with faith. Give us grace, Lord, as Grace Church, that we would be people who are not marked by our partiality, but as people who are generous, who respect others, who love others just as how you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.